Hi, everyone. Before we begin today's show, just a quick reminder that Michael and Us has a lot more content available at patreon.com slash Michael and Us. We post an extra episode there every week, along with bonus content, including, though not limited, to interviews that I do in my day job. A recent highlight being my conversation with the author and science fiction writer Cory Doctorow, with whom I discussed Bill Gates. Recent Patreon episodes include an episode on Gates, one about the Silicon Valley boondoggle we work with special guest Wendy Liu, and a crossover episode with Josh Olson and Dave Anthony of the West Wing Thing podcast, to name just a few. So if you enjoy the free episodes and want to hear more, please consider supporting the show at patreon.com slash Michael and us. We're very grateful to be able to partner with Jacobin Radio, and please don't miss other great podcasts on the Jacobin Network, podcasts like The Vast Majority with Micah Utrecht, The Dig with Dan Denver, and A World to Win with Grace Blakely. Now, without further ado, on with this week's free episode of Michael and us. Over there, over there. Send the word, send the word over there That the Yanks are coming, the Yanks are coming The drums rum tumming everywhere Well, welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... Luke Savage. Hey, everyone. I think both of us have had a bit of a long day, haven't we? But, you know, the show must go on. When I smell the grease paint, when I see the limelight, when I hear the roar of the audience... What can I say? I just I just start dancing. I'm in my element. Yeah, and we're and we're we're trying to have a kind of back to basics uh, week this week. We got a political documentary for this episode that features some themes that are very familiar to this podcast. We also hope to do a CNN film called President in Waiting, which, based on the trailer, looks like a very credulous portrait of the office of the vice presidency. Believe it or not, we've been completely unable to find this film. This usually happens with like homemade documents documentaries about Howard Dean that we discover and want to cover. Um, this was this was on CNN, I think. So there, there's no way that it's impossible to find. If anybody has a copy, please send it to us so we can cover that as well. Anyway, you've been podcasting all day. Uh, I've been I've been writing and actually it's a bit of change of pace for me this week. I can't say too much about it, but I am working on a book. And, you know, I'm in kind of third consecutive day of sort of deep writing and editing. So I'm actually, uh, I mean, three days is not that long, but uh, considering how plugged in I usually am to the news cycle, I'm feeling quite blissfully ignorant of things. Yeah, like we can't reveal too much about what Luke is writing, but let's just say, have you ever heard of uh, something called a movie novelization? <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're, I'm finally, you've, you've, uh, you've blown my cover. I'm finally going to write a, uh, a novelization of the Kevin Costner flick Swing Vote. He got a six-figure advance. That's something to look forward to. Look, we want to have some fun tonight, and I decided to go to my nearest barrel with a shotgun and shoot a fish in it, you know? (laughs) And there's an article that's been going around in my corner of the internet this week. I'm not going to say who wrote it. I don't want to be a mean guy who, like, names people and shames them. But I am going to say the tweet that they posted, because this was getting roundly roasted all over my section of the internet this week. Uh, This person wrote an article for Bustle.com called No, Hollywood Isn't Out of Ideas. It had a big picture of Emma Stone as Cruella DeVille. And the tweet said, I genuinely love small and weird art. I saw high life in a theater. But I can't help but cringe a little at the knee-jerk dismissal of big projects as inherently lazy. So, you know, it's one of those kinds of articles. And first of all, I just want to say the I saw high life in a theater is mwah. 
you know, just a beautiful masterstroke. It's like, oh, don't get me wrong. I like weird stuff. I saw the art movie that has Robert Pattinson in it. <laughs> you know, I go way off the beaten path. And, you know, this is this is the kind of article that, like, goes viral every couple of months. It's it's one of those kinds of, hey, maybe there's a lot of art in front of us. Maybe the mass-produced corporate slop, the absolute garbage, uh, the sanitized, focus-grouped, market-tested bullshit that's cynically foisted upon us. Maybe you're actually a snob if you don't like that. And maybe you're not, maybe, maybe there's actual art in there, you know? Well, a lot of this kind of discourse is just like an endless series of riffs on the idea that, you know, maybe the cultural mainstream is secretly avant-garde in some way. You know, maybe the latest uh, prestige drama written for people to binge watch after they come home from their soulless office jobs actually warrants, you know, like a novella length essay in the New York Times or something like that. It sounds sounds very much in that vein. So, you know, the article begins, you know, the last movie that this person saw in a theater uh, before the pandemic was Portrait of a Lady on Fire. So, you know, you've got your high art there. But Hang on, because they just went back to a movie theater for the first time since the pandemic. And they saw some low art. They saw Cruella. And, you know, uh, believe it or not, Cruella was wonderful. It was terrific. It was delightful. And, you know, maybe these movies aren't as far apart as you would think. Portrait of a Lady (laughs) on Fire and Cruella. And the article says, and I'm quoting, I've noticed a pattern recently among would-be film critics online disparaging the lack of original storytelling ostensibly in favor of remakes and sequels of things that already exist. And so the complaint becomes a recurring rephrasing on the internet. To paraphrase a few dozen men on Twitter I've had the misfortune of coming across over the past week or so, ugh, Hollywood only wants superhero movies and sequels and IP projects when they could be making my original screenplay that I wrote and no one wants to read. Jesus Christ, I'm so bored of that perspective. I might as well be reading random Twitter guy's terrible screenplay. It seems to me that the complaint, you know, that it's caricaturing is not exclusively held by people trying to get screenplays sold. I just want to enter that into consideration here. It goes on to say, just because a film is based on a property that already exists doesn't mean the film itself is inherently any less creative. Almost all movies are based on something. A book, a short story, a short film from another country. Am I supposed to enjoy You've Got Mail less because it's based on a film that was based on a play? Must every film bro stop talking about The Departed because it's a remake of a movie from Hong Kong? Hollywood doesn't work the way random people on Twitter think it does, where there's an executive sitting in a room with two scripts, one that says generic Marvel movie and one that says edgy original story. And he's so busy chomping his cigar that he makes the wrong decision every time. I gotta say, this isn't a new or original point. Uh, In fact, this is a point that's derivative of various other IP and and stories and is a remake of a Hong Kong film. But isn't it enough for this stuff to be the dominant culture? Like, what is this article reacting against? It's reacting against just a little frustration from, from generic people on the internet. The author of this thing can't even name critics. All of these things that they're referring to get at least 80% on Rotten Tomatoes, you know? Not only do they have, like, cultural hegemony, but at this point they have, like, critical and influencer hegemony also. And now there's this frustration that it it can't complete the deal. It's got 99% of the marketplace, and now we've just got to get that stubborn 1% to have it too. That is Monopoly, isn't it? (laughs) There's a punchline to this, though. The author bio at the bottom, and again, I'm not going to name the person, even though they can buy and sell my ass. They say, whoever, whoever is a writer of books, films, and television shows, including the upcoming Marvel series, She-Hulk for Disney+. Plus. 
Now, a lot of people pointed out that maybe there might be a conflict of interest that should be mentioned here in the article, where if you're writing content for Disney Plus and you do a whole article defending another Disney Plus product from vague and unspecified attacks from a certain elite cast, you know, maybe there's a bias there. Maybe there's a conflict of interest. Well, to go back to something you said earlier, I I didn't see this piece, but your description of it reminds me of that op-ed in the Washington Post about a week ago. Grown-ups, it's okay to love pop culture for kids. Stop being embarrassed about it. Where is the embarrassment? I don't see anyone being embarrassed. That's kind of what I'm coming to. Like, I'm always struck by how defensive the tone of that sort of thing is, as if this stuff doesn't already have, as you said, not just a monopolistic market share, but a monopoly on a lot of criticism as well. Like, there's a lot of places that are known for publishing kind of highbrow film criticism or whatever and culture writing that very much celebrate this stuff as well. Like, so much so that it almost feels niche. I think it was friend of the pod, John Semley, who pointed out, you know, like, it feels niche to him to go and and kind of look out for stuff that he'll actually like. Because, you know, the sort of, uh, you know, mass-produced popular culture here is very much the norm now. And yet you just still hear the, these constant complaints about how it's not being taken seriously enough. We're not we're not showing the appropriate deference to Disney Plus or whatever. There may be people listening who are saying, but 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 I like Cruella and that's fine. You know, like whatever gets you through this ordeal that we call life. That's terrific. Um, but actually, to that point you were making about the critical community, something that was interesting about the reception to the last Wonder Woman movie, Wonder Woman 1984, is that when its Rotten Tomatoes page first went live, it had something like 95% positive reviews. And then as the weekend went on, or as the week went on, that approval rating kept dropping. It kept dropping to like 70, 60%, you know? And a lot of that was because the studio had this whole group of influencers that they sent to see the movie first, and they published their reviews first. They have people not on the payroll exactly, but, (laughs) you know, a a certain group of people who can be easily massaged and manipulated, let's say. Film criticism, in other words, is now done in the same way that, like, CNN covered the Gulf War. (laughs) A world that has that, we don't need to have articles that are like, well, well, actually, the, the generic voices in my head need to be nice to this stuff. Well, there was a recent piece of news that I wanted to discuss, uh, particularly because of the the documentary that we watched, which we're going to talk about in a few minutes. But did you see this piece of news about Facebook suspending Donald Trump's account for two years? Yes, I did see that. This came courtesy of a friend of the show, uh, Facebook's Vice President Global Affairs, Nick Clegg, uh, who we discussed on a, in a different capacity <laughs> on a recent episode. <laughs> I'm quite reading from the the Associated Press now. Facebook announced Friday that former President Donald Trump's accounts will be suspended for two years, freezing his presence on the social network until early 2023, following a finding that Trump stoked violence ahead of the deadly January 6th insurrection at the Capitol. At the end of the suspension, the company will assess whether Trump's, quote, risk to public safety has subsided. Nick Clegg, Facebook's vice president of global affairs, wrote in a blog post. He said Facebook will take into account, quote, external factors such as instances of violence, restrictions on peaceful assembly, and other markers of civil unrest. Facebook also announced that it would end a contentious policy that automatically exempted politicians from rules banning hate speech and abuse, and it would stiffen penalties for public figures during times of civil unrest and violence. 
So there's a few things to say about this. I mean, people were very uh, were very quick to point out that this is a temporary ban. And I, and I want to put aside the very fraught question of, you know, should social media companies, you know, restrict Donald Trump's accounts or, or whatever? Putting aside that question, I think it's very interesting, you know, and, and people were quick to point this out, that the suspension is for two years. You know, like they've done an assessment and they're saying two things here simultaneously, between which I think there's a bit of tension here. So on the one hand, Donald Trump stoked violence, helped stoke a a deadly, uh, you know, what they're calling an insurrection. And, you know, uh, they're they're doing that uh, while ending this policy that exempts politicians from other rules they have around hate speech and things like that. But they're not announcing a permanent suspension. And as people were very quick to point out, this potentially frees them. It gives them the latitude to allow, you know, these accounts to be unfrozen uh, just in time for when Trump probably, you know, launches his next presidential campaign, you know, sometime in 2023. All of this is kind of a case study in why it's such a bad idea to let these private platforms um, or, you know, to kind of trust them to regulate speech. It seems to me, um, you know, people may uh, people people may disagree, but I don't think it's too much to extrapolate that Facebook is building this kind of market calculation into a suspension like this. You know, they know that Donald Trump and his accounts are going to be a boon to traffic and things like that. In the same way that other media companies, you know, have spent years publishing anti-Trump content, but at the same time, like they can't look away because it's great. You know, cable news in particular, I can't remember which cable news CEO it was in 2016 who said Trump is bad for the country, but boy, is he ever great for ratings. I think that very much applies here as well. For me, anyway, it's difficult to read, you know, this blog post by Nick Clegg as anything other than, you know, a corporation trying to reconcile two competing market demands, trying to achieve some kind of synthesis between the two. On the one hand, there's this tremendous desire among a lot of people, a lot of users of this platform to see Donald Trump banned, to not have to think about him, etc. On the other hand, you know, Facebook has benefited enormously, I would say, from the whole Donald Trump ecosystem, not just from Trump's account uh, itself. Anyway, I hope people will remind me about this episode and what I said in 2023, when and if Donald Trump's accounts are reactivated. The AP article points out that platforms like Facebook and Twitter are very important for fundraising as well as being just soapboxes. It'll be very easy to see what Facebook decides, and I suppose Twitter as well, although I'm not sure where they stand on Trump's suspension right now when he wants to run for president again, as it seems like he probably will. Well, speaking of the Trump ecosystem, we have one of the original bad boys of the Trump verse for you on this podcast today. Folks, when we were trying to decide an episode topic, you know what I said to Luke? I said, get me Roger Stone. He loves the game. He has fun with it. And he's very good at it. I'm an agent provocateur political strategist, controversial as you can get. An incredible capacity for treachery. Win at all cost mentality. When people think of Washington corruption, they think of Roger Stone. Those who say I have no soul, those who say I have no principles, are losers. Those are bitter losers. There's really nobody quite like Roger Stone. The Nixon tattoo is really all you need to know about Roger. We really pioneered negative campaign advertising. He created the modern sleazeball lobbyist. Washington's been worse for it ever since. Roger Stone, agent provocateur, political mastermind, the the Machiavelli of the Republican Party. Oh, God, it was just so great to see him again. You know, this guy is the best Republican. And I think anybody who prefers John McCain to him is fooling themselves and they are depriving themselves of fun. 
So I had a somewhat conflicted reaction to this film. I, I did actually uh, enjoy watching it quite a lot. I mean, I think it's one of the better political documentaries on Netflix that I've seen. It's certainly very entertaining and also an interesting time capsule back to 2016, but also back through several decades of Republican politics. I suppose it fits into kind of the wider corpus of, of Michael and us in that it's, you know, yet another one of these documentaries. And this is where I guess my, my kind of less positive reaction to it was it's very much channeling the archetype, you know, found in films like The War Room, which was the D.A. Panabaker joint that we watched, well, quite a long time ago now few years back at this point. It's another one of these documentaries about, you know, the Machiavellian genius of a particular political strategist. And I just want to say right off the bat, you know, that that's, that's an archetype that I, as a rule, that, that this movie is framed around Stone's rules. Uh, here's one of mine. Uh, as a rule, I think that that archetype uh, is basically bullshit. You know, the media loves a good story, you know, about a Machiavellian strategist. Uh, it's, it's really compelling to think that there are these people that are, you know, doing all this sorcery behind the scenes i think invariably when we see that like in the war room it's just like george stephanopoulos and james carville going from room to room after a debate saying that their guy won and the other guy looked weak or something and then it's hard it's hardly 24 dimensional chess you know we we hear a lot about strategists you know in kind of political and current affairs writing you 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 hear a lot less about organizers who i think tend to be the ones to do the the altogether more boring but altogether much more important work of politics i'll reiterate i think the documentary is entertaining i think in some ways it's quite informative about roger stone about donald trump uh, indirectly and also about you know a particular strain of right-wing politics i don't get the sense at all that roger stone is somebody who has any kind of you know secret genius i think insofar as far as he's been a successful political operative, you know, his main innovations have been, you know, I suppose, for one, a willingness to lie without concern about blowback to a, a visceral instinctual talent rather than something he spent a lot of time thinking about a visceral talent for identifying uh, an opponent's vulnerabilities and weaknesses and then exploiting them in the meanest and cruelest ways possible you know and i think you know there he shares a, a lot of parallels with donald trump who's you know also in some ways you know very effective at what he was doing and three a spectacular fashion set you know, <laughs> yeah a, sorry a that sartorial eye yeah something long associated with donald trump as well but you know in two of those senses at least you know i think stone is is an interesting route to exploring donald trump as well i think another parallel he shares with trump is you know both of them are self-styled outsiders you know that who are going to drain the swamp but i mean both of them have literally been like you know, swimming in the swamp for decades. I mean, the film talks about the, I'm jumping ahead a bit, but, you know, film talks about the consultancy that uh, Roger Stone ran with Paul Manafort and a few other people, you know, that just would represent like literally any clients who would pay them. It didn't matter. As long as it was legal, they would just do it, whether it was, you know, authoritarian governments or, or whatever. You know, similarly, Donald Trump had had his, you know, fingers in all kinds of enterprises that people absolutely hate, you know, in, fa- in, in enterprises whose very names are synonymous with sleaze, you know, real estate being a big one, you know, casinos being another. And so, you know, the, the major parallel here, I think, is that he's somebody who's, you know, willing to just lie without caring about kind of respectability in, in certain circles, which, you know, is something that you can say about Donald Trump as well. I'm very skeptical. If you've been listening to the show for a while, you know, I'm very skeptical about this kind of popular idea that Donald Trump was some kind of um, exception or anathema, you know, compared to earlier Republican politics. Uh, I don't really buy that, but I, I do buy it in the sense that I think he took kind of right wing shamelessness into a new and totally unconstrained realm in terms of the things he was willing to say and do. And I think that's very much true of Stone as well. 
I think the difference that a Donald Trump or Roger Stone has with kind of other members of the swamp is just they don't get, they don't really seem to care about getting invited to the same dinner parties. You know, they don't they don't care about a certain kind of respectability. You know, in 2016, there was, you know, kind of revolt of conservative elites against Donald Trump and, you know, uh, against, I suppose, Ro- Roger Stone as well. Everybody that, you know, got on board the Trump train. Uh, the National Review published that famous against Trump issue where they had, I can't remember, 14 contributors, something like that, all come out and issue these, you know, denouncements of Donald Trump. You know, liberals loved it, but it fell on deaf ears in terms of the Republican rank and file. I think, uh, you know, this exposed kind of the Achilles heel of the so-called, you know, movement intellectuals, um, you know, of American conservatism. There's a pretty well-researched study called uh, Never Trump Revolt of the Conservative Elites, which you know, I didn't agree with all its conclusions, but in offering a profile of different parts of you know, what's called the conservative movement, I thought its description of the conservative public intellectuals uh, was really on point. And also why uh, so many of them in particular, much more than in other areas, um, it was these people that were you know, most hostile to Donald Trump. A big reason for this, as the authors pointed out, is that a function of conservative public intellectuals for a long time has actually been, you know, they they obviously serve a kind of highbrow, you know, affluent conservative readership, but that's really secondary in some ways to their main function, which is to sell conservatism to an audience of liberals, right? To make uh, conservatism respectable, to graft a, an intellectual tradition onto what has fundamentally been a very vulgar and id-based kind of politics for a lot of the people who are motivated and animated by it. So Stone, like Trump, I think, you know, there's a lot to call into question about his, you know, anti-establishment credentials. As the film documents, you know, he's been a part of the swamp. He's been a part of uh, Republican politics for decades and decades. But I do believe, you know, like Donald Trump, one point of distinction he has from, you know, other Republican operatives is that he he really doesn't seem to care about respectability at all. He's very self-interested and he will, you know, do and say whatever it takes to win, even if that means not getting invited to the respectable dinner parties. Well, the film builds a case for Roger Stone as being arguably the most consequential Republican of his era. It tracks his career back to Watergate when he was uh, involved in the 1972 Nixon campaign and was, uh, let's say, adjacent to certain Watergate-related activities. (laughs) Uh, This is the kind of connection that could quash many a career, but not Roger Stone's. Roger Stone understood early on that As Oscar Wilde said, the only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about. He so admired Nixon, was so loyal to Nixon that he even got a big Nixon tattoo on his back, just like I have. And he wanted to parlay some of the notoriety of having been, uh, let's say, adjacent to Watergate into the image of somebody who, uh, you know, uh, could kind of get things done. So at 25, after the fallout from Nixon, he took over the Republican youth arm. Paul Manafort is interviewed in the documentary saying, among other things, that he believes that Stone's hiring in this position was like the last piece of the puzzle of the Republican Party's transformation from the glory days of Eisenhower to the more ideological direction that it would eventually go under Reagan. So th- this is something that I actually really like about the film. And I think for something uh, you know of 2017, which is when it came out, I do think it, in a way, it it kind of uh, resisted the prevailing zeitgeist, which was all about how, you know, we've never seen anything like this, where what happened to the good guy Republican Party, this film makes a, a pretty strong case that 
you know, insofar as there ha- you know, was a transformation in the Republican Party, it began in the early 60s. You know, it began with Barry Goldwater. It, you know, it began with William F. Buckley. You know, William F. Buckley, you know, who in 2016 was constantly being cited as, you know, what happened to this conservatism, the highbrow, you know, articulate, uh, literate kind. You know, in 1965, where Roger Stone was only 13 and he was already taking the train into New York on weekends to volunteer or perhaps do paid work, I'm not sure which, um, for William F. Buckley Jr.'s unsuccessful, but still pretty formative and important uh, mayoral campaign. You know, and Stone was inspired by uh, Barry Goldwater and the con- and his book, The Conscience of a Conservative, as well. So the film, I think, has much to commend it in that respect. It's tracing a through line, you know, not from, I don't know, uh, the 2012 Republican primary to the 2016 one, but from, you know, Barry Goldwater and kind of the early and mid-1960s all the way through to Donald Trump. In the Reagan era, Stone is credited as being one of the inventors of the modern super PAC. One of the inventors of the modern super PAC was the guy who aligned himself with the drain the swamp candidate tells you quite a lot doesn't it well because these are guys who knew the system and so only they <laughs> could dismantle it you know he became this pioneer also of modern day lobbying he was the co-founder of black manafort and stone which became notable as a sort of uh, lobby group for dictators it represented uh, ferdinand marcos among other illustrious figures as Stone says in the documentary, uh, one man's dictator is another man's freedom fighter. We see Jeffrey Tubin throughout the documentary, by the way. Always happy to see that guy uh, who observes that to Roger Stone, morality is a sign of weakness. In the 90s, Stone continues his ascendancy as an advisor to Bob Dole. But, you know, his heart isn't really in the Bob Dole run. You know, these are kind of the dark days. Bob Dole's campaign runs heavily on values And as we learn, Dole's values do not exactly align with Roger Stone's because this is the moment when Stone's uh, rather exotic sex life emerged into the public eye. I'll I'll give Roger Stone a little bit of privacy and, you know, not not, uh, out of respect to him and his wife, not get into some of the sordid details, except to say that uh, he he was more or less booted from the mainstream Republican movement after that. Well, I think we can outsource this one to a famous June 2008 essay in The New Yorker, uh, The Dirty Trickster, which was penned by uh, the now uh, infamous webcam fapper Jeffrey Tubin. Um, the, the film yeah, was actually... Yeah, let's actually... not throw stones when you're living in a glass house, bud. <laughs> <laughs> the film was actually partly inspired by this essay. Um, and I'm going to quote liberally from it here. Uh, on this episode, Will's talking about with the uh, the Dole campaign... Stone served as a senior consultant to Bob Dole's 1996 campaign for president, but that assignment ended in a characteristic conflagration. The National Enquirer, in a story headline, Top Dole Aid Caught in Group Sex Ring, reported that the Stones had apparently run personal ads in a magazine called Local Swing Fever and on a website that had been set up with Nadia's credit card. At the time, Stone claimed that he had been set up by, quote, a very sick individual. That's in the film, incidentally. Oh, and was he ever... But but who was that individual? <laughs> but he was forced to resign from Dole's campaign. Stone acknowledged to me that the ads were authentic. When the whole thing hit the fan in 1996, the reason I gave a blanket denial was that my grandparents were still alive. He said, I'm not guilty of hypocrisy. I'm a libertarian and a libertine. So el- elsewhere in the article, Stone kind of sums up to Tubin uh, his political ethos. And, you know, obviously granting some room for Stone's kind of opportunism and willingness to say anything here. I think there's a... Uh, 
certainly summing to what he says here. He says, I'm a total Republican, but I've never claimed to be a Christian right conservative. They're a large but dwindling part of the party. We need to get suburban moderates back. Fiscal conservatives and social moderates have been drummed out of the party. Fiscal conservatives are the glue that hold the party together. Social issues, unfortunately, do nothing but put voters out of reach for us. Stone's rule. Folks want to get government out of the boardroom and the bedroom. That's funny. That seems counterintuitive to the direction of the lot, a lot of the Republican Party. They've kind of made their bread and butter on social issues over the last 30 years, even even under Trump to a certain extent, you know, like Trump got a lot of the evangelical vote because he was ostensibly, you know, pro-life. Well, yeah, I mean, that's it's an interesting point. I, I think this is a pretty uh, difficult question to unpack or a complicated one to unpack. You're right that Donald Trump's support among that constituency in particular was ironclad. But, you know, it's it's also the case that the moral majority era you know, gets its name from that constituency. I mean, Trump really represented a different mode of, of Republican politics. I mean, he won over that constituency anyway. He won over a lot of constituencies within the Republican tent pretty solidly. But, you know, the messaging of the moral majority was kind of laden with, you know, prudishness and, you know, an impulse towards censorship and, you know, that kind of thing. Wasn't this kind of libidinal real estate developer from Manhattan with like a string of model girlfriends? Yeah, That's right. Trump embraced vulgarity. And, you know, I think a lot of people at the time, you know, in 20. 2016 thought that Trump could never win over this constituency because, you know, it would be hypocritical for for these folks to support Donald Trump. Well, uh, it turned out they uh, they didn't care and they supported him anyway. Though Roger Stone is kicked out of the mainstream Republican establishment, he remains active in politics. The film makes the case that he was in a low-key way highly influential to the eventual election of George W. Bush having influenced the Brooks Brothers riot, and then before that, having encouraged Pat Buchanan to leave the Republican Party and run for the Reform Party, and then create a conflict by also encouraging Donald Trump to consider running for the Reform Party, and then to blackmail Pat Buchanan by spreading rumors that perhaps he had uh, an illegitimate child from 20 or 30 years ago. As the film describes it, he was extremely successful in causing the Reform Party to collapse. So successful indeed that Al Sharpton apparently consulted him to help him in his uh, 2004 Democratic primary, just in terms of tips for how to disrupt the primary process. It's funny the attitude that Roger Stone strikes throughout this documentary. You know, at one point he makes a crack. They're, they're talking to his grandmother, or maybe it's his mother. I can't remember. But like he, he makes a crack that now, remember, you can't trust these filmmakers. They're liberal filmmakers. And throughout with these filmmakers, he strikes this bullshit pose where like, Half the time he's speaking in character, then half the time he's showing you the man behind the curtain. He'll always say stuff like, listen, it's showmanship. Politics is artifice. And I understand that. Uh, You know, here are are Stone's rules. And Stone's rules are always like the most cynical maxims he could come up with. It's better to be infamous (laughs) than to not be famous at all. At, At one point, he flat out calls himself an agent provocateur. But then at other points, when the filmmakers quiz him on, you know, some of the work he did with dictators, he'll say, nope, I was always within the letter of the law. I don't feel at all guilty. I don't think I did anything wrong at all. He'll put up the posture sometimes when he thinks they're trying to, like, catch him on something. The the Stones rules, incidentally, like stuff like that is the reason why I say that this, you know, whole archetype of the, you know, Machiavellian political strategist is almost invariably bullshit. I mean, the rules are just like, you know, warmed over 
Sun Tzu for dummies or what or something. You know, it's just like, uh, yeah, it is better to be, you know, feared than loved. Uh, lay low, play dumb, keep moving. Nothing is on the level. That's another one. Hate is a stronger motivator than love. You know, this isn't exactly a, a deep uh, or, or novel philosophy of politics. He's just a particularly shameless exponent of the kinds of sleazy stuff that a certain kind of operative has been doing for decades. During that wilderness period, he continues to be a sort of informal advisor to his old friend, Donald Trump, who he's been encouraging to run for office ever since the peak of his real estate days in the 80s. And The Apprentice gives new life to the Trump brand. When Trump finally announces his Republican run, Roger Stone is a paid advisor to him. Although by the time the primaries roll around, he is no longer officially on the payroll. He made a powerful enemy out of campaign manager Corey Lewandowski. It's funny, Trump also appears in the film as a talking head, presumably filmed either just before uh, he was elected president or even while he was president. Uh, to you know, basically sing Roger Stone's praises. It's funny because in the Tubin article, which is from, uh, as I said, June 2008, uh, Trump is quoted as saying, Roger is a stone cold loser. He always tries taking credit for things he never did. <laughs> I guess the two of them patched it up. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems that they have a, had a bit of a, you know, love-hate relationship even throughout the primary. Uh, the main reason that it seems Roger Stone either quit or was fired or maybe some combination of the two from the campaign is he he was giving too many press interviews and Corey Lewandowski gets the blame for Stone's departure. But I mean, as we know from Trump, he would often lash out at people in his administration who he, he started to perceive as taking a little bit too much unwarranted credit, like, you know, the other mastermind, Steve Bannon. But the movie makes the case that Stone continued on as some sort of unofficial advisor to Trump, probably even though he wasn't on the payroll, a, a more trusted advisor to Trump than many people who were. A bunch of petulant more losers and the party will be better off for their departure they see they liked the george w bush years when the economy he's, was he's in the, the toilet oh, and when they took us to a phony war in which americans died and they, and they ruined our economy the bushes got richer their families got richer their friends got richer but the american people got nothing but poorer the Bushes are war criminals. They should be prosecuted. Mr. Stone, can I get a picture with you? Yes, of course. Well, the film, as I said, um, you know, is a remarkable time capsule back to 2016, which I know is not that long ago in terms of months or years. But I think in some ways, you know, it, it feels very distant in the current moment. You know, so the film kind of loosely, you know, charts Roger Stone's trajectory through decades of conservative politics right up to 2016. That's kind of the narrative arc. But it actually opens with Stone at the RNC in 2016. You know, he's not in the front row. He's, a he's in a box. Like, he's looking on from the sides as if he is the puppet master holding the strings. <laughs> And the, the Trump speech, the part of the Trump speech that he's watching, I think, you know, it's it's one of those things that, that gives you insight, you know, like it or not, into a very important aspect of Donald Trump's political appeal. I think that, um, you know, at the time anyway, what I remember was, um, you know, a, an overriding me media focus on the unrespectability, if you want, of Donald Trump on the vulgarity and also, you know, uh, justly on the on the racism as well. But the part of Trump's speech that, uh, that you hear at the beginning of the film, Trump says, I quote, Quote, we must break free from the petty politics of the past. America is a nation of believers that is being led by a group of censors, critics, and cynics. All of the people telling you you can't have the country you want are the same people who said Trump doesn't have a chance of being here tonight. We love defeating those people, don't we? To all Americans Excuse tonight, me, he I'm said, we love defeating those people, <laughs> don't we? Don't we? 
to all Americans tonight, I make this promise. We will make America safe again. We will make America strong again. We will make America great again. Anyways, without overlooking all of the obvious ways in which Donald Trump was just a continuation of a basically racist political project, I think something like this is a good reminder of the ways in which Donald Trump was also pretty innovative by the standards of Republican politicians. It's very difficult for me to imagine, say, a Mitt Romney uh, delivering this speech or a Paul Ryan, you know, they wouldn't say those same words, but also they wouldn't, they wouldn't deliver it kind of in that tone. They might be trying to tap into the same impulses and grievances, but, you know, but they'd be doing so based on speaking notes that they got through focus groups and stuff like that. You know, it wouldn't have that, uh, you know, use the word earlier, that kind of libidinal appeal. It wouldn't, it wouldn't be as instinctual and thus it wouldn't be as effective. Since 2016, and largely because of Donald Trump and kind of the discourse around him, the word populism, I think, you know, has been, it's, you know, it's become a kind of vague and catch-all term. And in the non-pejorative sense, I reject, I, I basically reject the whole idea of right-wing populism. I think you can't be populist in any meaningful sense when you embrace the political priorities and aims of the right. But if we're talking solely on the level of kind of aesthetics, if we're talking about a way a politician orients themselves against the establishment, I think this is a really good example of, of why Donald Trump was able to win over, despite being a, you know an open and explicit racist, you know, people who voted for Barack Obama once or even twice in some pretty key areas. And also why he was effective against the Clinton campaign, why he was able to pull off, you know, despite losing the popular vote, this win in, in an election that the Democratic Party, you know, absolutely, well, had and still has no excuse for losing. Clinton was running openly and explicitly kind of as a tribune for the establishment. In some ways, not just the, the Democratic and liberal one, but the Republican establishment as well, or parts of it. Trump attacked a, a large swath of the political class, and the political class reacted with anger. And it ultimately turned out that they didn't have a lot of sway. They didn't have anything like the popular legitimacy that they thought they did. And, and when somebody attacked them, it turned out there was a big and somewhat broad constituency that was ready to listen and be receptive to that. Who created Donald Trump as a political figure? What have I lied about? Have you spoken with the WikiLeaks founder? You're a rape tonight. Roger, you can't just say that. You have to be outrageous to get noticed. America may be collapsing, but Roger Stone is determined to enjoy it. Well, people probably haven't thought that much about Roger Stone lately. I had a great time revisiting him. I, I didn't love the movie all that much. It was fine, whatever. But it was it was great to hang out with Roger Stone, see him in action, you know, just soak in the man's raw charisma. And I was curious what he's been up to lately. You may remember, of course, that Donald Trump pardoned him in the waning days of his presidency. I'd actually forgotten about that. That's incredible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he didn't serve any prison time. And Roger Stone repaid the favor by, on January 5th, speaking at a Stop the Steal rally uh, right before the Capitol riot, encouraging people to fight to the bitter end. And in April, Roger Stone was hit with a lawsuit for $2 million in unpaid federal taxes. Well, it's how they, it's how they got Al Capone, wasn't it? <laughs> it seems that we haven't seen the last of this Machiavellian strategist. But before we close out, I just want to say that, you know, we were talking about Roger Stone's excellent fashion sense. Uh, he does have his own fashion website called stoneonstyle.com, and it hasn't been updated since 2018. Hopefully there will be a comeback. In 2018, his last article was Mr. Stone's Annual Best and Worst Dressed. He writes, once again, we must note that while fashion is fleeting, style is both timeless and enduring. Skirts may go up or down and neckties may be wide or thin, but the double-breasted navy blue blazer with gold military buttons will always be in style. 
on his best dressed list, he's got Kit Harrington, uh, one of Game of Thrones' most recognizable actors. The man who plays Jon Snow has slowly evolved in the past few years, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. He's got Melania Trump. Uh, let's face it, the first lady would look great in anything she wore. But this kind, cultured, soft-spoken lady takes major abuses for her fashion choices, with virtually none of it merited. I uh, compares her to uh, Jackie Kennedy, David Beckham, etc., etc. Let's see who he's got on his... Uh, oh, Steve Carell is on his best-dressed list. He's now as good-looking as he is funny, an accomplishment most comedians never achieve. All right, let's get to the worst. On the worst list, Simone Sanders, uh, Lena Dunham. Oh, come on. I'm sensing that these choices are a bit partisan. Yeah, you, you, you think so? Um, <laughs> like, the ne- you're next you're going to tell me, like, it's like Hillary... You put Hillary Clinton on the list. Well, let's see. Hang on. He's got Mark Zuckerberg. How can a guy this rich look this bad? He clearly spends all his time figuring out how to censor non-liberals on Facebook and no time thinking about his fashion choices. The hoodies and t-shirts are from Hunger. When he puts on a suit, it is horribly tailored and looks like he got it off the rack at a red dot sale. <laughs> this just goes to show the limits of, of uh, Roger Stone's political insight, because I'm absolutely convinced that Mark Zuckerberg's you know minimalist fashion sense is very much a choice. Like it's part of that thing where billionaires like to, you know, style themselves not as capitalists, but as obsessive enterprising geniuses or whatever. Like it's the same reason Elon Musk tweets about rockabilly and Jack Dorsey talks about his intermittent fasting and his, you know, daily meditation routines or whatever. There's no way that Mark Zuckerberg doesn't have consultants, you know, the Roger, the sleazy Roger Stones of the corporate world, like telling him when you go to Congress, just wear a t-shirt and jeans so you look normal. Okay, well, in fairness, though, to your earlier allegation that his choices were ideological in some way he has another section called lifetime achievement where he's got he's got uh, some cnn talent including anderson cooper he's got uh, farid zakaria of whom he says we hate to admit it but farid belongs on the lifetime achievement list somber understated and correct the man knows two power that's a mistake he means the power of a dark suit white shirt and every shade of dark blue but you'll like this. The number one slot on his worst dressed list is a name you might have heard of, uh, Steve Bannon, of whom uh, Roger Stone says, how many ways can you say slovenly? Bannon looks like he chases down hobos for their clothes or was up freebasing all night. Perhaps he can get fashion tips from convicted pedophile Jeffrey Epstein, who the New York Post reported he's been meeting secretly with. <laughs> It's funny to read that because, as you observed earlier, Stone is very good at identifying people's vulnerabilities and hitting on them in the meanest way possible. Um, Obviously, Steve Bannon kind of dresses that way on purpose. Like, Steve Bannon knows how he looks. And I just think there's a kind of poetic justice in the fact that, like, this attack from Roger Stone, you know, the Machiavelli of American politics, doesn't draw any blood. It's like in Steve Bannon, Roger Stone really met his match. Cowardice. Are you serious? Apologies for freedom. I can't handle this. When freedom brings Andrew the call on your feet, stand up tall. Freedom's on our shoulders. USA. Every 
over here.